little treat for you. Um, as you know, Meredith, my daughter, went on tour uh, <clears throat> last month, and uh, she's going to give you some details on this morning. We wanted her to give us an update on the wonderful opportunity, and we're so grateful for so many that rose up to help her make that happen, and of course, to be faithfully praying for her. So I'm going to give her the pulpit here. She's going to come up and give us an update on what happened and what God did. Good morning, Valley. How do you guys feel this morning? Good. It's colder than I like it. It's like, what is going on? Spring just showed up and it disappeared. Um, so I am Pastor David's daughter, Meredith. I'm the oldest um, of five kids. And um, I did go on tour, and it was really my first, um, the biggest outing that I've been on since I've started my um, professional career about two and a half years ago. Um, I released a album last year. And uh, God has just done some awesome things since then and has presented some awesome opportunities. And one of them was this tour. So I was out with um, Jason Crabb and Natasha Owens at the end of February. And then in March, I moved to Cutlass, their Christian rock band. And seventh time down, they're like releasing a lot of radio singles right now. Um, so it was just amazing. And um, really what I'm about to tell you is me bragging on what God has done in my life and what he gave me the grace to do rather than me bragging on what I did in my own strength because um, he was the one who allowed me to um, do what I did the last couple months. So I want to start by just um, thanking you guys for your prayers. Um, some of you may not have really um, been aware of me being gone, but a lot of you uh, were. And um, many of you guys out there have um, supported me in so many ways, and you guys know who you are. So um, this is just my victory is your victory. Um, and it's just been an incredible journey to see what God has done. Um, so <coughs> I don't know if you guys are very familiar with tour life. I know I wasn't very much either. Um, but the main thing that I have seen is that, um, honestly, tour life is kind of the opposite of what I would like um, in my own life, which is amazing why God has called me on a journey like this, because um, <coughs> if uh, you were to ask me a question about my life, like, what do you love? And I would say, well, I love to be comfortable. And um, my comfort zone is, like, really comfortable, and I really don't like to leave it. Um, and, you know, growing up homeschooled and growing up in church, I just love my church family, and I love being at home. I love my family. Um, and so going out on a trek like this is kind of the opposite of what I would have chosen for my life. Um, I'm not a big adventurer. I'm not a big risk taker. Um, <coughs> I don't really love saying goodbye to what I hold dear, which would be, you know, you guys and then my family, and I don't really love major change. So all of that um, is what I had to deal with when I went on tour, which is just like, okay, Lord, why did you pick me to do this? You could have picked some person that would uh, love to bungee jump or skydive because <laughs> that's not me. Um, so when I realized this, um, God was kind of just knocking on the door of my heart to say, you know, I have given you a purpose and a destiny that's so much bigger than you so that my grace can shine through that. Because often if we're given a purpose that is like, oh yeah, I'm totally cool. I got this covered. Then we're like, why would we need God's grace in our lives? Um, so I think God picked me to do this kind of uh, ministry because he wanted to show off, and I think that's awesome. Um, so um, all that to say, tour life equals goodbye comfort zone, and I had to just be like, all right, Lord, and what he did 
through me and allowed me to like expand and stretch me as a person was just amazing. I mean, everything down to like sleeping in a bunk on a moving bus, like through the mountains of Tennessee. I mean, it's pretty rough. You're moving and you're getting bus sick. And I'm like, Jesus, help me. I'm like, I really don't want to get up and get sick, you know. So it's just like little things like that really stretch you. Um, and there's a like I was curling my hair in the little tour bus bathroom and like trying like I put my feet on either side of the room because it's that small to hold myself balanced. So I'm just like <laughs> like bashing my shoulders everywhere. And I'm like, well I wasn't like involved in any violence. I just was on a tour bus and got beaten up. Um, but <laughs> that stuff is just like, all right, Lord, this is if this is what is necessary to go through to um, to accept your calling in my life, you know, I'm ready to do it. Um, so I just wanted to share with you guys um, two things that God has shown me, um, two of the many, many things that God has shown me on um, this tour, was uh, number one is that... Um, it's just a new, a new take on his grace and how sufficient it is <coughs> for um, a journey like that. And uh, his grace is, um, it's there because he often calls us into a purpose and a destiny that we couldn't do by ourselves. And so then it's just like God is so much greater in those instances when we're like, well, my own strength wouldn't even touch what's required for this. And um, so that was really neat to see that um, and to see that I had no chance to give myself any glory because I know that I wouldn't have been able to do any of that on my own. Um, so that was really neat. And then the second thing is that um, showing why it's so important for us to step out of our comfort zone. And number one, it's, it's for our own benefit. It's for our own maturity, our growth. Um, and so, obviously, when we step out, God has only good things for us in store. And then the other side of it is that it not only benefits us, but it benefits other people when we step out of our comfort zone. Because at the beginning of this tour, God was like, do you remember, like, the purpose of you being on this earth? And I was like, yes, you're right. Matthew 28, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. If God had been like, okay, stay and make disciples of all nations, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I'll stay here in my zone. But he said, go, which I see as like, all right, here's my zone, just like stepping out and like accepting God's calling. Um, <coughs> so getting a new, um, God just breathing new life into that verse for me was like, all right, if I just stay boxed into my fear or my anxiety or my worry or pride or um, stubbornness to s or inflexibility, all of those negative things that would keep you from stepping out of your comfort zone, all that stuff stems from selfishness. And it sounds really harsh because it's like, well, if I'm afraid, why would that be selfish? Well, it's because you're not, if you're not focusing on Jesus, who are you focusing on? Yourself. And, um, it's also kind of shown in that story of, of Peter when Jesus called him out of the boat. He's like, you're going to be fine if you look at me. If you step out and start being like, oh, yeah, I'm a human. I'm not supposed to be on this water right now. Then you just start stinking. And so God was like, you know, keep your eyes on me, and you're, you're going to be fine. You're going to have everything you need. Um, <coughs> and you're not only growing, but you're also fulfilling the calling that we are all supposed to um, accept, which is making disciples. And so I have found in my life that every time I'm tempted to be like, all right, well, 
I don't feel like taking this adventure. I'm just going to step back and hang out where I know I'll be safe or I know that, you know, I'll, I'll be comfortable. Every time that happens, God is like, you know, you're not here on this earth for you. You're here. I gave you life to pour your life out to other people because his heart is to win his kids back. And if we sit in our zone, then it's like we're not doing what he's called us to do. So I have, looking back over this journey, I have seen how much victory I now have under my belt to, you know, whenever I'm tempted to revert to form, which is go back to my zone, I'm always like, well, man, God did that incredible thing in my life. He can do it over and over again. Um, <coughs> and so all that to say, God has just blown me away with how how good he is and how he has exceeded my expectations um, because, you know, we, we tend to put God in a box and limit his power when he's like, you have no idea what I can do. Just give me a chance to do it. Um, so thank you guys for your support. Um, I could not thank you enough. You guys have really been the wind in my sails um, as well as the Lord's grace. So thank you for allowing me to share with you. Hey, Mayor. I wonder if I could just hold you one second, just to ask you a question or two. Um, so tell me or tell us about what was one of the more impacting experiences that you had on concert of some of the people that would come up, because that was one of the things that was really cool that I remember hearing from you is that you, you, know, you did your part of the concert, but it was afterward when you were you know, talking with the children. Tell us a little bit about that. What was impacting about that? I have seen that my music really um, grips the heart of young adults and youth and kind of the, the tweeners, like the in-between, you know, right before the teenage years. Um, they're just really encouraged by my messages. And so after the concerts, we would be out at our merchandise tables and we'd be, be there to like sign autographs and talk to people. And there were several um, young people that came up to me and just were able to just identify with what I had written about, and I was like, you know, this is why I write this stuff, so that it can resonate with, with you know, especially young people, because I wrote all this music when I was um, in my late teens and early 20s, um, and so what I saw God do in young people was just so encouraging, because it's like those just God-affirming, like, you know, this is what I've called you to do, and this is why you're doing it, um, even if, you know, Jesus was excited about one sheep. So it's like even if one person came up to me and said, your music touched me or encouraged me, um, it's worth it. Amen. So Meredith, you were on this bus and there was like only, uh, there was only one girl, two girls in the whole. Two girls. And there was, well, I'll say there were three and four girls. Um, there were three girls at a time on the first leg of the tour and then four girls on the second but it was out of like 25 people, so obviously the rest of them were males. So it was a really, a really uh, testosterone-filled tour. And <laughs> the, the, the second leg of it, which was the entire, the entire month of March, was Cutlass is like a Christian rock band, so, you know, they're all like, you know, grunging it out and, you know, just... They had special names for you. Yeah, they gave me, you know, death metal tour names, and, <laughs> you know, that's like... I am so not that kind of person, so we just laughed so hard, and so they kind of changed me and tried to turn me into this rocker chick, and it was really fun. Well, I got a chance to go down on Meredith's first weekend and uh, eyeball all the guys down there were on the tour, <laughs> and I had a baseball bat in my hand, and you know, so they pretty much got it 
figured out, hi, I'm Pastor David, and I have special skills. I will find you if you hurt my daughter in any way, shape, or form. So anyway, did you have a question? You want to ask me another question? Oh, that's Andrea. Okay. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. You're interrupting our service. No, anyway, go ahead. Oh, yeah, right. That's a good idea. Um, up and upcoming, yes. That's another big testimony that, you know, I was praying that God, you know, this, the tour was, um, it was kind of a one-time deal. And so, you know, I was going on this, this opportunity and not really knowing if God was going to bring anything else, like, from that, but he did, um, and um, I was invited to go and perform at Atlanta Fest this June, um, and Mercy Me and Natalie Grant, and um, I need to remember the rest of those for the rest of the services, but look up Atlanta Fest, and I was invited to that, and I'll have like a 30-minute set, um, and uh, then after that, um, I'm looking at a tour in August, um, and that'll be, I'll be the headliner for that one, so I'm really excited, and God just provided some um, just like sponsors and just like exactly what I prayed for. Like, you know, just there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears coming into this tour. Um, just so much hard work and, you know, not to say that this happened because of me. It was, it was God, but he was clearly strengthening my faith and my trust in him during that. So seeing the fruit of it is just, just incredible. Amen. Thank you, Meredith. Appreciate it, sweetie. <laughs> Amen. Well, we're very excited about what's, and definitely this tour, you know, was, was hard. Meredith was having to chunk everything and carry all, her, all, of, all of her equipment and back and forth. And, and, uh, but what was neat was the other producers on the tour got a chance to see Meredith, see her heart, see what she was doing, especially the other bands. are just like, man, you're, you're an interesting gal, you know, and, and the purity of her heart, her message. And so God has really opened some great doors for, for this young lady. I'm very excited to see what, what God is going to do and uh, to really be a part of Valley Community Church and us sending her out to, to really change the world, which is really our heart. Amen? Amen. Well, let's change directions here. I want to share with you the remainder of our time. I've got a quick message for you. And again, there's no notes to go with this, but I just want to read some scripture here that kind of dovetails with, with Meredith's message, but also just something to encourage us right now. Um, you know, what the church is going, what, you know, what is the church going to do, rather, uh, going to do when it's backed into the corner. And we know that in our culture, we're going through some real shifts. And we can't blame anyone. It's, it's, the scripture talks about that these things are going to happen in the last days. Whether we're in the actual last days, I don't know, and I can't say that. Uh, you know, it certainly feels like it's 11.59, but, uh, or 11.59.59. But, uh, uh, but I've got a, a funny suspicion that, uh, uh, that we've still got a lot to go through and that there are more difficult times ahead for the church. But how are we going to handle that? What are we going to do when we feel so backed in the corner that even to the point where maybe they start demanding that we stop preaching Jesus? And, and the, the truth is, that's beginning to happen now. It is growing in its popularity. And so what are we as Christians going to do? You know, they're wanting us to stop talking about sin. They're redefining what sin is or even getting it completely out of our vocabulary, we find that the idea of a creator God is, is mythic. It's not to be something taken seriously. Um, or even the concept of eternal life, you know? I noticed that one of uh, a major newspaper had prominently put forward a, an article. Uh, really, you know, you've heard the, 
the, what is it, the, the 30 minutes in heaven or the 10 minutes in heaven or, you know, the different things that we've, the movies we've seen, the books we've read, things that have encouraged us about, you know, the afterlife. Well, they had put forward this guy who said, look, there's nothing there. And he said, man, I died three times and I saw nothing. And I thought, well, that was an encouraging article. You know, <laughs> why would you want to put something like that on the, on the front page of this newspaper? But again, it's just kind of this assault that we see going on and a lot of it's under 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 the waterline we don't really see it coming but again the, it, the goal is to build a utopia here it's always been man's desire to build a tower it's always been man's desire to try to build a heaven on earth every philosophy whether it be marxism or uh, any type of utopian philosophy or, or religion it, they're always trying to say look let's why wait for heaven and the God of the universe, let's, and of course, it's all the enemy whispering into the hearts of man to try to do that. But in order to build a utopia here, we've got to get rid of the concept of heaven altogether and a God to help people better embrace a sinless society. No sexes, no sin, no feel bad world. We've got to get rid of the Bible and all those that believe that God's, God rewards those that seek him, diligently seek him. And, and ultimately will withhold his favor from those who don't. That is something people don't want to hear. That's not a popular message. And so you got to go after it. You, you, you've got to get it. So, which makes it me all the more desirous to preach, to send my children out, to have Meredith out there in any way, shape, or form that we can continue to let his praise be glorious, to to let the world know that there is a creator God, that God loves him, that God did send his son to save people, amen? And uh, so Paul represents, really in the book of Acts, a very intolerant religious class. So here we have this story about Paul. His name was Saul and gets converted to Paul. And I just want to hit on this real quickly. And, uh, but he represents this religious intolerant class that is coming up against the burgeoning, the growing church. And so here he is filled with pride, filled with self-importance. He represents all that really is religious and evil. So it's kind of unique. Paul is a unique person because not only is he, kind of, is he proud and arrogant and wanting to snuff out Christianity, but he represents a religious class, so he does it in the name of the church, if you will, which makes it that much more insidious, kind of ugly. And so he wants to get rid of this pesky movement that is hindering the status quo life. So Paul is out to jail Christians is what he's doing. And, but what happens is simply amazing when you read Scripture there in Acts uh, chapter 8. And I'm going to read that now. And I believe we're going to, or actually, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 9. We're going to put this up for you. And I'm going to read it. Meanwhile, it says, Saul, who again is going to be Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats. That's strong language, isn't it? For a man who supposedly is a godly man. Murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is what they called this, the growing Christians, they called them the way, whether man, men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's going to go to, he's, he went to the high priest, he got letters of endorsement so that he could go to other cities and basically say, hey, I'm, I'm Saul, I'm endorsed by the high priest, and 
in his name and under authority and order, I can arrest Christians and put them in jail. Or in this case, he was going to actually take them back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem so they could be tried uh, by the synagogue. Uh, I'm sorry, by the, uh, uh, by the leaders of, of, the, of the Jewish um, Sanhedrin. So let's keep going here in verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. Obviously, he's stumbling. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he struck blind. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Damascus, uh, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called him, him in a vision and said, Ananias. And he replied, yes, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So this is amazing, miraculous stuff going on behind the scene. Not only has Saul been knocked off his donkey, not under the ground, and he's been struck blind, Jesus appears to him, not to anybody else, but to him only, and he goes stumbling away. His whole experience, his whole mission has been interrupted by God. And then on top of that, apparently he goes back to this place where he's in major depression, as you might think, because his whole life has been turned upside down. And God gives him another vision and says, look, this, this guy named Ananias is going to come. He's going to lay his hands on. He's going to heal you of this blindness. And meanwhile, God speaks to Ananias and says, go and, 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 speak, and, and uh, lay hands on this guy. He says, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Whoa. So Saul, this man, has an amazing calling on his life. He says, I will show how much he must suffer for my name. Meredith talked about the comfort zone. Basically, what he's saying is Paul's, Saul's getting ready to get out of his comfort zone. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And, and after that, taking some food, he regained his strength. So Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues, synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Talk about a miraculous turnaround. So he's heading north with a murderous heart. He heads back south with his life completely changed. God interrupted his life. And we're going to talk about why this is such an important story for right now here in just a second. I want to finish it. So he, uh, and all those who heard him were astonished and asked, and we would all guess this would be the question, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? As you might recall, Paul was the one who was giving his endorsement to the stoning of Stephen. 
So he was considered a murderer, and for the rest of Paul's life, he sees himself as a murderer as a result of being a part of that. So everybody's going, obviously, I mean, we would be a little afraid of this guy, wouldn't we, as Christians? If we knew that somebody was gathering up Christians, coming to town and throwing them all in a, in a, in a jailer's truck and carting them off to be, you know, tried. Um, but only then, the next weekend, instead of him taking people away, he's standing at the pulpit and he's talking about Jesus. What on earth happened, right, in between? says, isn't he the man who raised havoc, and isn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. That's awesome stuff right there. That's Bible stuff right there. That is the church. What's so unique about this story, historically and even for us, is that, you know, we talk about the times of Christ. We teach from the times of Jesus. And theologically, there's a special way to treat that. And sometimes teachers try to uh, devalue what Jesus taught because, well, these are modern times. You know, God doesn't do that anymore, which I think is ridiculous, by the way. God is the same today, you know, yesterday, today, and forever. The same. What God did, God still does. And what, what God wants to do, he still wants to do. And he's going to do it in the heart's and the souls of men. So here we are in a time where there are in similar, there are in similar places, there are Sauls everywhere who are breathing out murderous threats, whether it be in Sudan, whether it be in China, whether it be in Iraq right now, wherever we might find Christians all over the world. We don't experience that kind of you know, hatred and, and, and murderous attack, but folks, I'm not sure that we're far away if things continue as they are. And so what do we do? You know, what, what do we do as a church when we hear about such things? And yet, and I read, I read in blogs, I, I listen and talk to people. I've even experienced it in my own heart, a sense of intimidation, a wave of fear. Maybe even, you know, I'm done with this. I'm heading for the mountains. You know, let the earth have itself. I mean, if they want to keep having, you know, these um, bathrooms where, you know, sexless bathrooms where just anybody can come in. I mean, they want to do that. I mean, yeah, that just blows your mind in thinking, where, where are we? What on earth is going on? And yeah, and that's exactly what we think is, you know, like, well, forget me ever bringing my child into the bathroom. Forget that. I guess there's a market for porta johns right now. But anyway, we won't, we won't get into that. But yeah, that's right. So anybody looking for a good business opportunity, there, there you go. But uh, <laughs> I brought my own thank you. Uh, anyway. <laughs> oh, Lord help us. But anyway, so we got all this kind of crazy stuff going on, and we just kind of, and, and so as I said, the church, we can be intimidated and kind of feel like we've been pushed into the corner, and what on earth are we going to do? My point in reading this story here today is this. There have been darker times for the church. There have been very much darker times. If you look at history, as bad as it is now, it's been worse. And as bad as it is, as we feel like it might be, there are certainly Christians all over the world who are, have it much worse. They're being beheaded. They're being drowned. They're being, they're, you know, they're suffering indignities beyond what should be happening in our world today. 
That's a whole other thing. But when those kinds of times come, what does the church do? Well, that's why I think this story is so special, why this story is so important for us, and why it's in the Bible for us to read. Because here, the church was in great panic. One of their, one of their great heroes, one of their young and up-and-coming stars, Stephen, was stoned on the streets right in front of them. The church goes into panic. They begin spreading all over the place. They, they're fleeing for their lives from Jerusalem. They go as far as Antioch. They go to all over the, west, or, uh, the eastern part of the Mediterranean there, that, that part. They're going everywhere, even as far as away as Rome, to flee this stuff. And yet the guy who is at the very spear point of destroying the church, God just says, God just says, bink. God is able to do something that shakes the world in such a dramatic way that when we look at this, we just shake our heads. And what it should make us feel like, my friends, is that, you know what? Our God is in control. That God could come to a man like that and just just appear to him and just say, hey, look, you've been telling me that I wasn't the son of God. You've been telling me I didn't rise from the dead. You've been telling other people that they should be ashamed for what they're believing and that they should be imprisoned and in some cases die for believing the way and believing me. And all God Jesus had to do was show up and blind him for a period of time, which I think in many ways, was, was symbolic. I mean, because nothing will destroy a human's potential than taking what is his ability to see and just show him, look, I'm shutting you down. And so when we look at the world today, I'm not saying that we need to pray that God strikes down the souls of our world, but at the same time, we don't need to give up. We need to begin to ask God for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done. What I'm trying to get us into our hearts this morning is that we should not be in retreat. We should not look at these threats. We should not look at these things as, as, well, you know, it's over. You know, Jesus, come again. Look, Jesus is going to come when he's going to come. And we can't keep our eyes on that. If we're all just standing around, just looking up and waiting for Jesus to come, we don't get to the business. There are plenty more Saul's who need to be knocked off their donkeys. Matter of fact, they don't really tell you that, but I suspect, matter of fact, I think you could indirectly prove the fact that the church was praying that that would happen. I'm sure in their little houses all over Jerusalem, they're saying, Lord, please. We're not asking you to kill Saul because that's not a good thing to pray, but we are asking you to reveal yourself to him. That's a great prayer to ask God to show up. And you know, it's happening all over the world today. We don't hear about it as much, but you've heard of of the the Muslim dream. And this is so common, it it, it actually needs to end up in the encyclopedia one day. Because so many Muslim uh, radicals will have a dream and see Jesus in their dream. It is so common. I have talked to men who know this as a testimony. And Jesus will appear to them in a dream and say, look, why are you killing my people? Am I right along? It, it is absolutely happening. And they'll wake up and they'll say, oh my gosh, you know. I, I've, been, I've been kicking against the pricks. I've been moving or against the goads. I've been fighting against God. 
and yet the whole time thinking I'm doing work for God. Because that's exactly what Paul thought he was doing. He thought he was doing a good service to God. As so many people think they're doing a service to humanity, that they're doing a service to our children. They're doing a service. They think they've got good intentions. I call it compassion confused. And in the end, it's working against God. It's devaluing the truth. Because what we find that in history is that even though there may be some who are going to suffer and even die at times, the blood of the saints only fuels the eventual outpouring of God's retaliation that turned the hearts of the people. And we shouldn't fear for our lives. We shouldn't fear for our safety, for our comfort zones. Folks, if anything, we need to buck up. We need to, pull, we need to put on the armor of God, and we need to move forward. Because, look, it's not going to be in our strength. God is going to use the, 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 the tender testimonies of Meredith in the world. God is going to use our testimonies. God's going to use our lives. God's going to use our brokenness. God is going to use our insignificance at times to change the hearts of people. Every time Paul, from that day went on, he, every time he met before kings, he met before people of incredible influence, and they just stared at him, and they, and, and they couldn't stop what was going on because most of the persecution was religious. It wasn't secular. Because when, they stood, when he stood before the, the, the magistrates, police departments, judges, courts, if you will, they looked at him and said, why are you even here? Because I see you're a man of integrity. I see you're a man of, of, of mission. But you're not breaking any laws. So why are you here? Ah. Well, the question, and he, in, in course, you know, at times he tried to convince him. But the truth was this. Because I've got an enemy called the devil who's trying to stop what God is doing. And so he is fighting. So folks, there are going to be Saul's among us and around us. There might be a Saul in your life right now. There might be someone in your life who you just feel like, oh man, I don't think God can change his heart. And I'm sure many who looked at Saul and said, there's no way. There's no way. He's, he, he, was in his, he was early 30s. He was trained by Gamaliel, one of the top uh, priests he was on his way up. All that he was doing had a very selfish reason for it. He wanted to be on that Sanhedrin. He wanted to be a top dog. There was a reason for all of it. Everybody knew it. Completely selfish motivated, but yet uh, feeling like he had a passionate purpose. God knocked that right off. Those are going to be those people that we see. And I'll tell you what, that's where we need to focus our prayers. Rather than give up, rather than pull back, rather than... Rather than you know, to withdraw and stay back. Folks, we need to brush off our ability to intercede and pray and ask our God to begin changing and turning this world upside down with miracles just like that. We need to say, God, may your kingdom come. Knock them off their donkeys. Reveal yourself to them. Show them rather than curse them, rather than make up a bunch of memes about them, mocking them. Let's pray. Let's pray. And watch what happens. And I keep an eye on that. I love to read the testimonies of the people in, the, in, in Hollywood or in the athletic world or in the business world. And you don't really hear about it because nobody wants to talk about that. 
Yeah? You're not going to see that on Newsweek, you know, that an important business guy got saved or an athlete of incredible influence is now walking with Jesus. But they're happening all the time, all the time. And so we should be encouraged by that. The, the, the other person that I'll finish talking about here that I think is so incredible in this story is this guy named Ananias. That's who we are. So we got our Saul's out there, but who are we? We're Ananias. So here Ananias is. He's minding his own business. Imagine he's sitting there praying. He's in his comfort zone. He's having his tea. He's having his coffee. He's having his bagel, whatever he's doing. He's sitting there, and he's just minding his own business, enjoying reading about Jesus, hearing about Jesus, talking about Jesus in his own quiet little place. And then God speaks to him. I'm calling you to be a part of something big. Yes, sir. What is it you have? Do you want me to go feed the poor? Do you want me to go do that? No, I want you to lay hands on this guy named Saul. What? Uh, I don't think I want to do that. I mean, what I'd rather do is what we used to say, I'm going to lay hands on you, all right? I'm going to lay some heavy hands on you. You know, instead of hands on, it was more hands around, right? That's what he really wanted to do. But in his heart, he obeyed God. He was there. He was prepared. He was ready. He was available. He didn't give up. I am quite certain that God chose Ananias because his heart was already there. And so we need to get to that place because we, we may be in the, in, the, in, in the mode where we're just like, look, curse this world. May this world just burn up. God, burn it sooner than later. When God is saying, no, 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 I'm not coming until every single soul that can be saved will be saved. I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And that's our calling. And we should not be dismayed when the enemy in the throes of his, you know, of his death, of his ending, is trying all the harder in these last days to try to snatch as many people. We need to be like Ananias, ready, available. You know, you think of Ananias, and that's really the only place we hear of him in Scripture that, that I recall anyway. Of having a very significant part of the kingdom of God, and just, just being available to do something so powerful. I'm sure that they had, that Paul and Ananias had a unique relationship for the rest of their lives. Paul coming in with all his vigor and his, you know, his power, because, you know, he talks about him becoming more and more powerful, the great Paul, that when he came, when he came back to, Matt, to Damascus uh, to see Ananias and how his eyes must have softened and realized, you're the guy. Thank God for you, Ananias, that you obeyed God and you came. You weren't afraid. You didn't pull away. You didn't, you didn't say, God, find someone else. So, folks, we need to get ready. We need to be prepared. Because when darkness arises, the kingdom of God rises too. But it rises through the lives of those who are willing to be made available for that. That's key. That's key. So, don't be dismayed today. Don't be discouraged. When darkness comes, light will be that much more bright. <laughs> when though, and often it will be in the, in the way, uh, in the, in, through the lives of people. It will be the murderous threats. It will come with those who are, are full of pride and arrogance and, and, you know, the sweet voice of, of religious pride or, or some kind of philosophical, you know, mumbo-jumbo that will draw the hearts of the young people of our generation. Believe me, as 
as we as people begin to cry out to God and pray and make ourselves available, all that stuff, they're just paper tigers. There's nothing there. And when God comes and shakes the hearts of people, when God knocks them off, when God reveals himself, now we need to be ready. We need, in many ways, we need to be the Ananias church, don't we? Not just an individual. But we need to be a church that acts like Ananias, ready, listening, ready to move, to gather in the harvest when they come. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up this morning.